Good morning. Good morning. We're ready to start our class. A couple minutes late. I'll be honest, I went and got a kolache. That is why we're late. <laughs> so, but we're in the book of Acts, and, and we've, we've covered a lot of ground. I did the five-minute overview last week of what I actually want to cover in detail today from Acts chapter 12. But it's, it's a fascinating part of the history because this is really the last prominent mention of Peter. His name occurs one time in chapter 15. I mean, once. I mean, he appears in chapter 15, but it's, it's a blip on the screen, as it were, because James, Jesus' half-brother, seems to be very much in, in leadership at that point. And then Peter's gone. What happens to Peter? You thought about that? Like, the book shifts. I mean, when you get to chapter 13, well, Lord willing, and as they say, the creek don't rise, we'll cover chapter 13 next week. It's all about Paul. It's, it's, it, Peter's gone with no mention of, by the way, here's where Peter's at. He's just gone. Then he blip on the screen in chapter 15. You never hear from him again. What happened to Peter? Any thoughts? Hmm? I said goodness. Well, <laughs> never thought of it. <laughs> well, we have some books that we call First and Second Peter, uh-huh. right? So, at some point, assuming he wrote them, as most Christians forever have assumed, um, he had to write those books. Look, look at, look at. Let me show you something in First Peter, just to give you some thought. But um, if the events that happen here in chapter twelve happen around AD forty-four. And have you heard how Peter died? Because that may give us a time marker. How did Peter die? Yeah, this church tradition, crucified upside down. And if you read the last chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus seems to tell him what's a coming. But Jesus is speaking in the last chapter of John's Gospel, really no later than maybe AD 33. Peter dies, we, his tradition would hold, and with good reason, in Rome in the 60s. So if we're around AD 44 and he dies in the 60s, 63 or thereabouts, there's a big gap of time. And now I, Do you think Peter retired, set himself up, and just was trout fishing and looking for a game and hoping he'd win the lottery and get to go hunt in Wisconsin, things like that? I mean, what was he doing? Well, if you look in First Peter, there's a fascinating statement. I'm going to read it to you because um, no one believes what he says. Let me just say it that way. First Peter 5. Chapter tw- uh, 5, verse 12. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and testify that this is the true Grace of God, stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends greetings, as does Mark, my son. Where does it suggest he wrote it from? Huh? She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. Where does it suggest he wrote it from? So for the recording, someone said Rome, Lou said Rome, and that's what... Every Gentile believes. And it may be true, by the way. In fact, I'll add to that. Uh, I read through 40 or 50 modern commentaries 
by Gentiles to see if any of them believed he actually wrote from Babylon. And not a one did. Jewish writers, Babylon, of course. Why? Guess who lived around Babylon? A bunch of Jewish people. All right, that's why. But, but just think about that. It may not be. I wouldn't be dogmatic. I, I take a, a view that Peter might have written this book from Antioch. But in order to get there, he does say Babylon. And he says it in much the way that Paul would end his letters. Me and other people in this or that city send you greetings. But when we read it from Peter, we say, can't be. That's driven by two reasons. One, they say, well, we have no evidence he ever went to Babylon. That's why I pointed out he blips out of the story in Acts 12. It's only A.D. 44. Virtually all modern scholars hold he wrote First Peter in Rome in the 60s. There is nearly a 20-year gap for which we got nothing in terms of actual history like this. Where was he? Um, Babylon's due east of Jerusalem. If you look at a map, you would go north and you would go through a bunch of areas that a little bit later in the book of Acts, Paul's going to want to go there so that he can sort of wind around east toward Babylon and the Spirit's going to say, no, don't go there. And all I'm saying is maybe Paul wasn't sent because Peter was sent. It's a possibility. All the old scholars, you go back hundreds of years, they accepted it at face value. Um, What you will find is people will say in in modern books with candidly little little evidence for is that there were no Jewish people in Rome. I'm I'm sorry, in Babylon. There were lots of Jewish people in Rome. Uh, That's clear from the book of Romans that he's, he's dealing with a very mixed audience. Uh, if you look in the Jewish encyclopedia, it's a set of encyclopedias that are everything Jewish, and you look up this issue about Babylon, the city had largely been in ruins for a long time, but it says there were Jewish settlements all around it in the first century. So, they, so the Jewish sources take a totally different position than the Gentile sources. So last thing, just to think about, just because it's a possibility, I'm not dogmatic about it, but Peter had to go somewhere after the book of Acts ends his story. Uh, how would Jewish people have ever gotten to Babylon? Think scripturally. Like How would they have gotten there other than just walking? Um, captivity. captivity, right. I mean, the story of the Old Testament is, is clear. God sends them into captivity. The northern region of, of Israel goes first. 722, the Assyrians come and they take them. Um, Some stayed behind. They intermarried with the Assyrian people. They become who we call the Samaritans. That's the reason the Jewish people in the south are so racist, right? That's what it is when you read John 4. Jesus talking to that Samaritan woman because she's not pure Jewish. She's she's a half-breed or so you so say. Uh, But then in around 586-87, Nebuchadnezzar made one more trip through Jerusalem and, and he destroyed the city. People went back to Babylon. When you start reading books like Haggai, Zechariah, and then the story of Ezra and stuff about who comes back out of captivity, almost everybody never went back. Almost everybody, even though it was God's will that they go back, the actual group of people who left was much larger than the people who came back. So if they stayed in Babylon, you can see a background for us. I don't know. 
Maybe Peter went there. We don't know for sure. Peter had to go somewhere. But Peter expected there to be Jewish people there if for no other reason than all the people in Acts 2 from all those places he listed had to go home at some point. At least a lot of them. So, maybe. But we get to this, this Acts 12, and this is really the last and detailed story of, of Peter. And we should not imagine that his ministry uh, ended. Whether he ever made his way to Rome, whether he just went elsewhere, Peter is active all the way up until he would die in Rome in the 60s. Luke wants to shift the story because the story isn't about Peter than Paul. It's largely about a Jewish church and then a largely Gentile church. And that shift is what's been in the works for a few chapters. That's where we're going. And in next, in next, next chapter 13 is Paul's, what we call his first missionary journey. Uh, he'll go a lot of places. He'll plant churches. And if you've got Bible maps in your Bible, um, you'll probably have a map that will show his missionary journey. And it'll have a little, you know, everywhere he went. So amazing stuff. Well, look what happens at the beginning of, of um, well, the end of 11 is helpful because there's a famine uh, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. This is where there's this new church that, that we've, we've seen, um, that the people are going to be called Christians there. And uh, there's more than one Antioch. Just a little later in the book of, uh, of Acts, there's going to be an Antioch in another place. So we get there, we'll point it out. But this is, is a big city in the Roman Empire, so it's going to be a prominent place for a church. And, and, and when Paul writes Galatians, he, he says quite a lot about events that happened in Antioch, Galatians chapter 2, because it's a flourishing church where Paul would preach for a year. So in those days, some prophets came down from, uh, down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch is north. See, we say we go down because we're going down to Padre. And, you know, fine. They say they're going down because Jerusalem's elevated. Right, it's, 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 I like stairs as long as they're going down, right? <laughs> going down, down to Antioch. One of them named Agabus, this is a, uh, a prophet, he stands up and he predicted by the Spirit there would be a severe famine through, throughout the Roman world. Um, this took place during the reign of Claudius. Claudius is emperor from 41 to 54. We'll get another time marker in a minute, but it does help you to get a, you know, if he's, if he's emperor from AD 41 to 54, the idea that these books like this are written 200 years later to create a story, it just, it just doesn't make sense. Um, each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers. Um, do you think those were like sacks of PB&J sandwiches? What were they sending? What were they sending? Walmart gift cards? Loaves and fishes. <laughs> loaves and fishes. <laughs> Find in this bag a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. <laughs> you'll need to add some Jesus to it, and then you'll feed the 5,000, right? That's good. Um, they're, sending, they're sending money, right? I mean, they, you, one could send some, I suppose, if you had some preserved food or something. But, I mean, they, 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 to understand what's happening, this is... Because, because, you know, um, something that's developed historically is kind of these denominational structures within churches and, and, and stuff. And then you've got other churches that are kind of, we're going to be our own island. And, and, and um, 
you know, stay away, right? But the churches here cooperate. They, they one assist another as, 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 you know, based on the circumstances. So these people in Antioch, these Christians, who are largely Gentiles, okay, the Jewish folk are often too good to eat with them. We've, we've talked about that before with, with regards to Peter's own failing in, Act, in Galatians 2. And, and who's feeding who now? See how that turned around? How do you get a bunch of Gentile folk who know for a long time these Jewish folks do not like them? There's an episode in, in um, the Gospels where a Gentile lady comes to Jesus and, and she's referred to as a dog because that's how they were referred to within Israel. Gentiles were dogs. And she says, but even a dog eats the crumbs that fall off the master's table. And, and, and just to say, um, this is quite a reversal of circumstances. What, would, what had to happen for those Gentiles to get out their checkbooks and send money to the very people who historically hated them? What changed? They're still Gentiles, they're still Jews. Jesus changed, so that's right. And, right? So, so what's happened now? They're family now, right? That's, that's the, you, you see throughout the book of Acts, it's, it's not just they're called Christians, but you'll start seeing a phrase there and later, brethren, brothers and sisters. That's what's changed. This is a big deal. So they're going to they're gonna send money. They're going to send relief. Uh, because, because why? Because the Jewish church will be impacted heavily because of the persecution that they've had. What kind of things happen as persecution? Of course, Stephen was killed. But you know what happens, and, and we see it slowly you know, ebbing through our culture. Persecution starts with marginalization. It starts with you canceling people. That's not a new notion to cancel culture. That was done uh, effectively by Hitler, and it was done long before he came around. How do you cancel people? You can be a Christian, uh, Jewish man that used to go to synagogue with me, but you can't work anymore in this town. It's real simple. You just cut off their life supply. So there's an impacted group of people. Each of the disciples, now look at how much they gave, according to what? Their ability, right? This isn't hard. We, we make giving hard. Uh, how many of them said, you know what, I'm just not giving anything? Well, maybe that happened. It's not mentioned here. What's it say? Each. Each. Uh, the word disciple throughout the book of Acts refers to Christians. It's just, it's interchangeable. Each. Yeah. So what about the person who only had two nickels to rub together? They gave one of them. That's right. They gave one of them. Right? I'm just, I'm just, think about this. Why would they do it? Not only had Jesus changed their heart so they could do this for these, these, these Jewish Christians who they now see as family. Um, they have love. When love does this. James uses in the just second chapter his little epistle this beautiful illustration. Chapter 2 verse 13 he says, you know, the, those, G, Jesus is going to judge without mercy those who showed no mercy. Talking about compassion toward other Christians. And, and then he gives an example in, in chapter 2, verse 15, of the person knocking at your door who doesn't have earthly goods. And, and it's an easy example. It's like pop quiz time, Christian. Jesus says, Christian shows up at your door, knock, knock, knock. And, and um, here are the facts. They got nothing. 
I mean, they got nothing. And, 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 and you have money in the bank and a fridge full and you got two hams in there and, and a lot of food and all this stuff. What do you do? Well, I pray for them. Doesn't that sound spiritual? <laughs> Jesus is like, open your fridge, open your wallet. Okay? And all I'm saying is, is you just think like that. Like, like these people didn't have to be in any way, because the Bible never does it. It never coerces giving. They just wanted to do it. But they understood it, it's such a simple thing. But you have to connect between love one another and the fact that it takes form in action. It's an attitude that leads to action. So you see it play out in this simple way. We saw it earlier. In the early church, one of the first things that happened is people started looking around and saying, we've got a lot of women who are widows who got nothing. There's no big discussion about how they set it up other than they end up establishing some deacons to make sure it functions. But these ladies are taken care of. That's it. So, so just, just think about that. These, these people want to do this. And it says they gave according to their ability. And that, that's easy for us to understand. When, when there's a need there, you look at it. You should want to give. That's a heart thing. You can't make people have the heart thing. Well, how much do I give? Well, how much are you able to give? Yeah, pretty easy. Well, they did this. And, and then they sent it to the elders, meaning the elders in Jerusalem. Um, who would that be? You see, some tra- this is another subtle thing, but again, we're going through some history now where the church, the church, if it started in Acts 2, we're now a little more than a decade later. Why don't they say, go to Jerusalem and give it to the apostles? See, the leadership is no longer totally residing just in apostles. And we're going to see this shortly, but they're beginning to have these what we call elders as the ones that are, uh, have leadership positions in, in the church, even in Jerusalem. And they send it by means of Barnabas and Saul. So these men, Barnabas and Saul, you know, very trustworthy. Uh, now it's going to shift to Peter. Uh, about this time, King Herod, there's lots of King Herods in the Bible, and it, it's, it's a good exercise sometime to, and you can get decent information just even on Wikipedia, but, but just go make yourself a chart of, Start with Herod the Great, maybe even his father, how he got power, what he had power over, and how long he had the power. We know Herod the Great's the one that tried to kill baby Jesus. We know he died probably in 4 BC. Okay? And his life had to overlap with Jesus' life, otherwise he couldn't try to kill him. That's why people say Jesus probably born 654 BC in, in, in that range. But uh, Herod dies, and then he's got sons. And, and so the power gets split. But when we're reading the Bible, we come across King Herod. You know, it would be easy to say, well, that's, that's the King Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus. Well, no, no, we're, that man's been dead for, for 50 years now. Uh, this is his, uh, his grandson. Okay? The Herods were, were just wicked. And, and they held a control under a Roman thumb for a long time. And, and Herod the Great liked to appease the Jewish people. That's one reason he started a massive rebuilding, um, remodeling, if you will, of the temple. Okay? And he started it bef- before Jesus was even born. And then Jesus, in, in, in John chapter 8, is speaking at that complex, and they're still not finished. Decades later. Like, he just dumped a bunch of money into it. 
Uh, he liked to build things, but he wanted to appease the Jewish people. And this guy, King Herod, who's now that evil man's grandson, he wants to appease the people. And, and, and much like Pilate, who was willing to murder to appease the Jewish leadership, this guy will do it too. So look what he does. He violently attacked some who belonged to the church. And he executed James, John's brother. James and John are two of the apostles. John writes our Gospel of John, the Epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. Um, him and James together were part of Jesus' most inner circle. They, you know, he had the 12 that included Judas Iscariot, but he had those three that he would often spend time with alone. Uh, they were there, right, Mount Tran- of Transfiguration. I mean, James and John, I, I think they had to be young because they had that. Uh, strong idealism, which is a good quality in many ways, but it's tempered at the right places, and Jesus called them sons of thunder. Um, uh, but they didn't sound too thunderous when they had their mom go ask Jesus if in the kingdom they could sit at the right and left hand. Let's send mom. He'll, he can't say no to mom. I don't know what they were thinking, right? But these guys, um, Jesus thought highly of them. He, he loved these guys. And, and uh, James is now the first recorded, uh, executed Apostle. Um, if James had, had uh, retired uh, and went back to fishing, this wouldn't happen. We, we sometimes can imagine because we, we see primarily Peter and Paul and a little bit of John that those other apostles, Matthias, okay, Matthew, like what are they doing? They're doing ministry. They're just not the ones Luke chooses to focus on. James is martyred. Because okay? he's out preaching Jesus, just like the others. And, and it says, with the sword, means he lost his head. Okay? That's what would happen to Paul later. Uh, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, there it is. Uh, you can imagine a time, uh, might come someday, when politicians listen to polls, gallop <laughs> polls and different kinds of polls, figure out which way the wind is blowing, and then decide what they've always believed. Right? Can you imagine that? <laughs> Turns out that's not new. There were politicians in the first century. Um, he saw that it pleased the Jews, so he proceeded to arrest Peter. What's he planning on doing with Peter? Chopping his head off, right? And, and, and except the difference is, and this is, a, this is a difficult question. I don't have an answer for you. Why does God let James die? He's going to miraculously save Peter. Uh, one thing I can tell you is James and John were both men of extremely strong faith there's no question Jesus picked them and trained them for three and a half years uh, the, the, the idea and it still is recurring in our culture and you see it in the, there's whole nations that are under a, a, a brand of Christianity I'm losing, using that loosely that you know your, your faith determines good health and finances and all of that didn't work for James in the long run it doesn't work for Peter for Paul, really for any of them. John may not have been executed, but he gets sent in exile. He, he has other terrible things happen to him. I'm just saying, don't, you think about that. Uh, you can be a faithful person, faithful to Christ, and still have bad things happen to you. Even this, even this martyrdom. Uh, Jesus just never promises that these things won't happen. What he does promise is, I am going to come back one day and settle accounts. And those people who persecuted his people aren't going to like it then. They're not going to like it. It's, it's, you know, truth and consequences. We're okay doing the crime, but we don't want to pay the time. 
So they're not going to like it. They're going to say, that's not loving. He ain't going to care. Okay? So, but just, just to see that there. Uh, he, he wants to kill Peter. During the festival, he's arrested during the festival of unleavened bread. So in the Jewish feast, you've got seven of them in the Old Testament. And, and the one we tend to think of, because we see it so prominent in the Gospels, is the Passover. Jesus died on the Passover. And, and um, at three in the afternoon, the time when, when one normally would, would slay the, the lamb that would be roasted and eaten as part of the Passover meal. But immediately past that day is seven more days called Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And within that period of time, you will have a Sunday. And that's another call. It's, part, it's within the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it's called out as a special feast day. And it's always that Sunday and it's the feast of the sheaves of first fruit, the day Jesus resurrected. So for, you know, again, this is, for, for a Gentile, we wouldn't necessarily know these. The Jewish person kind of gets it, and it, it wouldn't be politically correct to chop somebody's head off during the Passover. But we can wait a few days and then chop his head off. So he's going to be in jail for a while. And um, hey, why is it the feast of unleavened bread? Are they eating the, the, the ciabatta bread? Those uh, Hawaiian sweet rolls. What are they eating? Yeah, something like pita bread would be more more close to it, right? It's 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 flat. It, it, without the, the leaven or the yeast in there, it doesn't balloon up like a cake does, right? And and so uh, if you have these, it's just you know it's relatively flavorless. It's the flour and the oil, but without the other stuff and. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's a lot more than that. But understand, it's, it's that, and the Jewish people would uh, try to, re- they're required to remove the yeast from their house because it was a picture of sin. I don't know that they put all the pieces together, but, but Passover remembers being freed from bondage in Egypt. And it's a picture of Jesus freeing us from sin. Unleavened bread becomes a picture of the believer removing the sin from their lives, of, of, of living out the reality of their faith. That's what it's a picture of. So the Jewish person shouldn't have that leaven in their home. Uh, uh, there's even, even um, uh, an evidence, because part of the problem is, well, what do you do with it? I've gathered it together, but you know, I'm not... Right? Imagine if, if, if you weren't able to have um, candles in your house. Okay. You just need to find someone who, who's not a believer and ask them to hold your candles for a week. But that would be a little dishonest. So what I'll do, I'll sell you my candles. And in a week, you'll sell them back to me for the same price. And I'll put them back in my house. So some of that happened. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting. But if you see the picture, it's really a beautiful picture. And Apostle Paul will use it later in one of his letters. And he says... Not with the, the, the not with the bread and the leaven in that traditional sense, but we should keep the feast all the time of trying to remove sin from our life. Well, there it is. But uh, you can't kill Peter during this time. That will get people upset. But there was this this they tried to arrest Peter before, and it didn't work out because he got he got away. Right? They went to go see where he's in jail, and him and John are already out teaching, preaching the gospel again. So the Herod was a smart guy, and he said, well, I'm going to set a bunch of soldiers on him. After the arrest, he put him in prison. He assigned four squads. Each squad has four soldiers. That may be to be a rotating shift, right? There's 24 hours in, in most days, and so you, you would have six-hour shifts, and you rotate among the four soldiers, and every time you rotate, two of them, one is cuffed on the left and one is cuffed on the right. 
There's no way he's going to get out of jail. He can't pick the lock because he's got soldiers tied to his hands. It's great. Look at it. It says, they assigned four squads of four soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. That word Passover doesn't mean the day of Passover. Uh, Jewish folks would refer to the whole thing, the Passover and the seven days after that. The whole thing is the Passover. That's just, just common. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying, isn't that, praying fervently to God for him, um, which is great. The problem is, and this, it's a good lesson for us, you can pray with expectation or pray with none. And, and we need to be mindful of that. These guys, I, I don't say they have no expectation, but even they're surprised by what God's going to do. And, and, and it's, every time I'm surprised by God, then I look at myself and say, you should have not been surprised. You should have expected, because he's the God of dead ends. He's the God that takes people to the Red Sea, and then when everyone looks around and says, we're going to die, and God just says, no big deal, we'll just whoosh. Spread the, spread the Dead Sea. It's dry land. You don't even have to take your socks off. And, and, and then, you know, that's what God does. And he, he does it over and over. He does the parts no one else could do. And it's funny to see, uh, if you ever read the second psalm, it talks about how the kings of the earth sort of huddle up and, and they decide on how they're going to overtake uh, God's Messiah. And, and, and then it says that God, the Lord, laughs in derision at their plan. So here's, here's Herod, um, grandson of the other, the wicked Herod, and, and he's got, aha, I got a plan. He, he puts the pieces together. There's no way Peter can get out of this. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers. There it is. While the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. There's no possible way you can get out. You've got a soldier on the right, a soldier on the left, and two at the door. Try to get out, they're going to kill you. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared. And a light shone in the cell. Why didn't it wake the soldiers up? Huh? Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up. Why is Peter sleeping when he knows he's dying the next day? He's confident. Yeah. He's confident. Peter's confident. P- Peter, I, I think, likely knows or, or, or believes, maybe God has even given some indication, but the thing is, if, if it were your last day, you know, and you, you knew, you knew tomorrow you're going out there to get your head chopped off, yeah, the last thing I want to do is get the best night's sleep I've ever had. Right? No one does that except Peter. Uh, it's great. I mean, Peter's there fast asleep, um, secure in God's hands. Uh, a light shone in the cell. He, he's, he's woken up, and the chains fell off his wrist. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me. So he went out and followed. He did not know that what the angel did was really happening. It seemed so unreal that he thought it was like a vision or a dream, right? Because strange things can happen there. After they passed the first and second guards, they literally just walked by them, right? They came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. Right? Uh, they went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the, the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, 
Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. What a powerful thing. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. That's our Mark that writes the Gospel of Mark. He will begin traveling with, with, with Paul, and then there'll be a bit of a falling out, and then he'll travel with, with someone else for a while. He's probably a very young man. It seems there's a bunch of people gathered at, at Mary's house. Indication the house has a, a good-sized house. Probably an indication she has, has some money. Um, but we're, we, we don't... We, he needs to introduce Mark here because it's a name that early Christians reading this history, they would know who this is. He wrote one of the, the four um, Gospels. Well, many were assembled and were praying. That tells me the house is large. He knocked at the door of the outer gate. The house is gated. That tells me, again, this, this is somebody with some wealth. Uh, there's a servant named Rhoda. Mary got some money. Um, God uses people from all different stations and, and, and that's why, you know, I, I read you earlier, they gave as they were able. One of the ways Mary gives as she is able, she opened her house up for, the, for part of the church to meet there and pray for Peter. And, and it's funny, they're, they're still in there praying. She recognized Peter's voice, that's this young servant. And because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, and she just ran in and announced to the people. She leaves old Peter so standing outside, and she's so excited, she runs in. It's Peter, it's Peter. And they're like, you're crazy. God can't do that, right? Look at this. You're out of your mind. There it is. They told her, but she kept insisting it was true. Hadn't this happened before? This happened before. A couple of women went down to the grave. The grave was empty that Sunday morning. They ran back. No. Peter and John had to run down there for themselves. They even raced, it seems. Last, you know, second to last chapter of John's Gospel talks about who got there first. This has happened before. They should have listened to the lady. Peter, however, kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and they saw him, they were amazed, motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell these things to James. I thought James just died. To James and the brothers. James died at the beginning of the chapter, right? It's a common name. This is Jesus' half-brother, uh, the one who was not a believer when Jesus was alive. He only becomes a believer after. Um, but he becomes prominent in the church in Jerusalem. So tell it to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. Well, it, it, it daylight, um, well, there's one phrase I missed. So when she kept insisting, they said it's his angel. Like, it's not really Peter. It's like a, like a spirit. You know, they have this superstition about it. And it's funny. Um, looking for anything to say it's not just that God actually got him out. Uh, don't be surprised when you pray for something that God gives it to you. It's funny that they would believe it was an angel. Yeah. But not him. Yeah, his, his angel. Either, either like a spirit, like a ghost, or they believed it was his guardian angel. Because there's a strong Jewish belief in like guardian angels, and that's that's come through to some Christian groups believing guardian angels, and there's at least one thing Jesus says that seems to support that. So, uh, yeah, but they, they, they're willing to believe it's an angel, but not Peter. It's kind of funny because I mean, they were praying for it. And all I'm saying is uh, we should pray with expectation, not presumption. Okay, There's a difference. And, and don't be surprised when God gives you what you pray for. That's why you ought to pray dangerously. Okay? Pray dangerously. Ask God to give you opportunities for ministry, for example. Now, that's scary because it's going to come to you 
If you pray for it and he gives it to you and then you say no, you're in a worse shape than you were before you prayed. Yeah. Just think about that. But pray, pray, pray expectantly. And, and they did. So um, at daylight, there's a great commotion among the soldiers as what become of, of Peter. After Herod searched and did not find him, this suggests that Herod himself was so disbelieving he might have went down to the cell to see the empty cell. He does his investigation, he interrogates the guards, and he executes them. Just doesn't pay to guard Christians. Um, then, then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Caesarea is on the coast, and uh, Herod goes down there. Now, Herod had been angry. Now, the, the story shifts, and it gives us a great time marker because we know Herod Agrippa I, the Herod we're talking about, grandson of Herod the Great, he died in AD 44. That's relatively uh, well accepted. So this is AD 44 when he dies. I love how he dies. You're going to see this. He, he does something that um, I would suggest to you lots of people do it. Even some Christians do this. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Those were Phoenician cities. We see them throughout the scripture. Um, together, uh, they presented, they're, they're coastal cities. So they, the ships, they're port towns. City, the, the ships go out there. Together, they presented themselves before him. Uh, the people of Tyre and Sidon have some sort of beef with Herod. We don't know what it is, but they want to curry favor with him. So they send this guy, Blastus, um, who was in charge of the king's uh, bedroom. He's one of the king's senior servants, and somehow they've won him over. And so they ask him to go ask Agrippa for an audience. Uh, they ask for peace because of their country was supplied with food from the king's country. I think what happened, we don't know what caused the disagreement, but all Herod did is said, fine, I'm going to, we call this an economic sanction. We, we see it in our day. You can debate whether or not they're uh, helpful or, or effective, but here it was effective. They just shut off the food supply. Uh, doesn't take long when you do that. So it was provided from the king's country, from Herod's country, his region. Uh, and, and there were crops and things in, in, in Galilee. So um, on an appointed day, dressed in the royal robes and seated on his throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. This must have been a, a, a tremendous speech, right? Because um, it's like the speeches that that guy Kim Jong-un in, in uh, North Korea gives. No matter what he says, everybody, right? Because you're looking around and you think, there's not, there's not a person out there that didn't clap. And why? Fear. Yeah, there's fear. There's a famous picture from now, 75, 80 years ago, of the huge crowd of people saluting Hitler with one man just standing with his arms on his side, the only one anywhere. This happened way back there in Daniel chapter 2. Everybody was on their knee bowing to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built in the plain of Dura, except two dudes who stood out like sore thumbs. Right? Daniel's friends, or his three friends. Uh, Shadrach, Medrach, and Abednego, right? They're standing up. It was easy to spot the lawbreakers. Uh, everybody is, is giving them a big hand because they want their food. And listen to what they say. He delivered this speech. The assembled people began to shout. It's the voice of a God and not of a man. That's the problem. You, 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 you begin playing with fire if you take up the idea that you're divine or you're willing to accept that praise from other people. And, and we live in a day of, of, of celebrities, and they do that. 
And then sometimes we're surprised when these people uh, gain immense wealth and influence and then something happens and they're dead in a month. And all their money couldn't save their, save their hides. And there's some Christians that do it who have received just, just national and international influence. They're the types that will be on the television when the secular media wants to paint a picture of Christianity and what we stand for. And, and there's nothing wrong if, if the influence is because God has elevated you, because he elevates the humble. Scripture says that. An example is King David, Moses. But if it's your own self-promotion and you start getting this, this kind of adulation, be careful, because this might happen to you. They said, he's the voice of God. And he said, yeah. Look, it, it wants an angel of the Lord struck him. Struck him down. Why? Because he did not give the glory to God. I mean, he just took a math math test on this, right? I mean, it was one of those pop quizzes nobody likes, and God, I mean, he did everything humanly possible. The man cannot break prison. It's not like like people routinely break prison. He can't get out, and yet he did. And he knew this guy was saying all this stuff about a testimony of Jesus Christ. He had a chance to say, you know what, I was wrong. That's what we call last chance, right? It's, 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 it's that, that, that last time you hear Noah saying, all you have to do is get on the boat. I've been here a hundred years, and God's told me now it's time. And then, of course, the door closes, and then it starts sprinkling. Ain't nobody got an umbrella. Can I get on the boat now? Noah, you still there? Can I get on the boat now? Right, here's this guy. The angel struck him down. He didn't give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. That sounds sort of grotesque. Uh, he had warning. He should have known from the episode of Peter that God was in this, and, and, and it just shows his own hubris that these people say, you're like a voice of God, and he's fine with that. He accepted it. Well, we have a summary statement that brings this, this section to a close. It brings Peter's work to a close. The Word of God spread and was multiplied, it helps because at this critical time in the growth of the church, which is just on the verge of sending out Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey so that you start evangelizing everything north of the Mediterranean, you start that in in, in part of Asia here, Um, here's a guy who's going to stop it. He's just going to kill them all. Right? And God just says, no, not not today, right? Because God's going to ensure that the gospel goes where, where Paul and Barnabas are going to take it. So God takes this guy out. Was it loving? What do you think? Um, isn't the God of the New Testament totally different than the God of the Old Testament? I mean, the Old Testament, like, people oppose Moses' leadership, and he, he takes the ground and just swallows them up. Like, there wasn't a jury. There wasn't even a lawyer there, thank God. And there wasn't an appeal. Right? But God's not like that anymore. God doesn't take people out. A lot of people will tell you very resolutely, God no longer deals with kings and nations. Really? I mean, this, this, we have such a small view sometime of God. And, you know, I'm not saying this is normative in the sense like it just happens every day. But, you know, here he is. And, and he took him out. Because why? He was going to keep on killing because he wants to stop the spread of the gospel. And God didn't want that. I mean, it's really that simple. Uh, The word of God spread. They completed their relief mission. After they completed it, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem. 
taking along John, who was called Mark. So he begins as a young man his journey. That no doubt will help him later write what many believe is the first gospel written. In the old days, everybody thought Matthew was written first. All modern scholars say Mark. I don't have the answer to that. But Mark writes a gospel, and everybody agrees it's really, very, very early. Very early. Not, as, as, as some uh, would call liberal theologians, it's not a political statement, it's, it's people who claim Christianity, but only the parts of the Bible they like. Uh, they would say all these things are written hundreds of years later. But widespread evidence that Mark was written very early, and uh, seems like that's the case.